Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Due to the coronavirus lockdown and the temporary closure of Ombra, this talk was hosted as an online event via Zoom so that we could continue the Negroni talk series as planned. Good evening. Um, thanks for all joining us uh, on this sunny evening um, and welcome to the first, a world's first uh, online Negroni talk, obviously uh, imposed on us through the lockdown, lockdown or the lockdowner as it's uh, Surely be coming after a month. Um, this is the first of three talks that we planned originally for Ombra. Um, it's uh, a series on banality um, and it's titled The Joy of Architecture. Um, basically asking, um, do we in- is the process enjoyable and is the end product uh, uh, full of joy or not? So um, we have a, a really good uh, list of speakers and a return for our chair, Jane um, Klossick from London Met. Um, and she shared our second talk actually a year and a half ago on gentrification. So she's back in the hot seat um, and she'll be chairing the event. So I'll, without further ado, I think I'll pass you over to Jane and we can get cracking. Great, thank you so much. Hello everyone, nice to see you. This is also a first for me, trying to handle an event of this massive size. And it's great to see so many people come to join. If there's ever any confusion, <laughs> I'm going to put that up. So tonight we've got a series of speakers. I'm going to pass you over to them in a middle, minute to introduce themselves. And we're going to be thinking about where the fun is in contemporary architecture. Because as a process, creating buildings seems to revolve around function, finance and fear, rather than freeing things up for flexible flights of fancy. To add insult to injury, 99% of the time, the end product is uninspiring and distinctly average. I'm assuming that 99% figure is based on academic research. So do architects actually enjoy what they spend most of their time doing? So I'm going to ask the speakers first off to introduce themselves and then I'm going to pose them the question, what is joy in architectural terms? What does it mean to you? I know what it means to me because I started training as an architect and I got to the end of part two and I realised there wasn't enough joy in it. So I left and went and did something where I get to hang out with silly students all day which is teaching and don't have to deal with clients and don't have to think about money and don't ever have to deal with developers. <laughs> so I'm going to pass you over initially. I'm going to try and understand this list of people. So everybody is at the top. Paolo, if you could start, please hold on a second. Have I got that wrong? Wait, sorry. Just have a look at my list. Alfredo. 
please introduce yourself. Oh, hi everyone. I'm an uh, architect. I'm a partner at uh, Allies and Person here in London. I'm originally from uh, Venezuela, from Caracas, but I've been a Londoner for 19 years. Love the weather here. So it's a little bit better than Caracas. <laughs> so, and I tend to work in large projects uh, here in UK, but also abroad. I'm answering the question now, Jane. No, don't answer the question just now. We'll go on to that in a minute, I think. Alpa, please introduce yourself. Hello, uh, I'm Alpa Dapani. I'm an architect. Uh, I have worked in practice. I've also taught a little bit at um, the CAS and at Brighton University and at CSM. And I was part of the first cohort of public practice um, and I'm currently placemaking lead at Walden Forest. So I am trying to work out what that job title means. Great. Great. Uh, Lee? Hi, I'm I'm an architect and designer and uh, maybe an academic as a university pays me money to do stuff. I'm also the founder of Baxendale Studio. Um, most of my work is um, situated in contested urban areas or marginalised communities, uh, looking at how the kind of active participation in making and design and production uh, can improve people's individual and collective well-being. Great. Lara and Frederick. Hi, I'm Lara Lismes. I'm Frederick Helberg. And uh, we run the practice uh, Space Popular, where we do uh, built work, uh, as well as uh, work for uh, virtual realms. Um, and we also teach at the uh, a master's studio at the Architectural Association. And I guess we are revealing that we're also partners in life since we are the only two people that are in the same room. <laughs> Was that a secret before now? No, 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 secret. <laughs> Adding drama. <laughs> Great, thank you. Francis? Um, hi, I'm Francis Terry. I'm a classical architect. <clears throat> I'm involved mainly with uh, residential projects and um, yeah, I run my own sort of practice of uh, eight people. And um, yeah, that's, that's about it. Great. So I wonder if any of you speakers have any first thoughts on a definition of joy in architecture. And if you don't jump in, I will call upon somebody at random. I'll jump. <laughs> Great. I'll kind of jump in. Um, for me, uh, what I've been thinking about this, the joy in architecture is the point at which architecture offers an invitation to engage with it. I think that a lot of um, contemporary architecture uh, excludes, um, and it either excludes through literally telling you to F off um, by excluding you at the door or excluding you because of class or gender or um, race. and um, and I think that when I kind of spend a lot of time in various parts of the built environment, I'm always kind of aware of whether I'm allowed or permitted to be in any one location or be in any one place, or whether architecture as, as something public actually means that in any kind of real sense anymore. So the point for me at which architecture becomes joyful and delightful is the point at which it says, yes, you can kind of come in, engage, sit, play, 
um, move, participate, perform. Um, that's that's kind of joy in architecture for me. It's that opportunity. To so engage. it's where it gives gives people to space to do stuff. Yeah, and also the sense that you can do, you know, and it's not yeah. just a particular thing for a particular person at a particular time, but you kind of feel welcome. I mean, I think yeah. generally welcomeness, accessibility, that's the point at which architecture is joyful. Well, on that point of welcomeness and accessibility, it would be great if our audience could engage themselves in this discussion. And the way to do that with so many people and on this platform is please type your questions or type your comments into the chat box and I'll call on you to make your points when it's an appropriate moment in the discussion. So just in case anybody missed that, please put your questions into the chat box and I will call on you when it's an appropriate moment for the discussion. And the speakers, I've said this to you already in our pre-speaking chat, but I'll say it again. Please, if you have a point to make that follows on from one of your fellow speakers' points, do this, which does not mean anything rude that begins with W. And if you would like to make a completely different point, then please do this. And this goes for everybody who's got your camera on, but particularly for the speakers. If somebody else says something that you really agree with, then do this as an indicator of your agreement. And finally, I probably don't need to say this, but just in case, if someone's already said something, you don't need to say it again. <laughs> so anybody else like to jump in with an answer to the question of how do you define joy in architecture? Alpa? Uh I don't disagree with Lee. I was just going to say that I guess I have a bit of a problem with the word joy. Uh, I think a lot of amazing architecture is joyful, but not all of it is joyful. I think the idea of connecting to human experience and emotion, like using that as a driver for designing good architecture is important. But whether that emotion is always joy, like whether buildings always have to be uplifting, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, how would yeah. you define joy? Because that feels to me like a place we should start. Well, I don't know. I mean, what, all I was going to say just now is, uh, I guess, you know, sometimes I want to listen to the Smiths. I don't want to always be, uh, you know, joyful. And I think uh, good architecture is like good music and it should allow for the whole kind of breadth of, of human experience and emotion. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, I wouldn't support the idea of, a definition of joy that's about kind of what the aesthetic experience is it's, it's more about like what the emotional experience of a, of a building is yeah and maybe are you saying that joy if you focus too much on joy then maybe you're you're over representing that one human emotion when yeah, actually exactly. architecture's job is to be space for the whole of human experience exactly because you might want to support the quieter contemplative moments or kind of introverted moments I, I so i just have a little bit of a problem with like focusing on joy because that's kind of one part of the spectrum of human emotion yeah so ombre guys can i next time make it bigger francis yeah um i mean i, I think when i was thinking about it just as a superficial um sort of take on it you, you think architects do have a reputation of being quite a sort of joyless bunch if you compare them to they are often quite introverted because they're quite happy to sit down and design things for days on on end without anyone seeing them um and i think there is i'm not saying i believe it but there is this feeling that architects are a bit joyless their buildings are a bit joyless um 
and I can you can see where something like the postmodern movement came from. So, you know, I I think in a way that that sort of joy it's utterly superficial, but I, I can understand that where that came from. That kind of let's be really silly and do something uh, irreverent and so on. Because I mean, architects I think can appear intensely worthy and sometimes a little self-righteous and I, I, I can I can understand that you, just, that you know other art forms people can do stuff that's silly or playful or all of that sort of thing um I don't know does that make where sense? do you think it did come from the the sort of fl flurry you know the flouncy silliness of postmodernism? it was a reaction to a kind of just an accepted way of doing things. I mean, this is back in the early 80s. It's sort of accepted way of doing things where you had the modern movement, which kind of really took off after the war. And then there were several decades of inherited views, which got more and more tired and people had kind of forgotten why they had those views in the first place. And then you've got people like um, Venturi coming along and saying, you've completely got it wrong. You know, Las Vegas is is fun and let's let's look at that for a, a sort of a, um, a way of doing things i wonder if uh, modernism feels a bit joyless um well i mean i guess relative to painting uh, modernist painting which does have a lot of joy in it you know with color and, and so on i think i think architecture would be the more the more joyless end of the spectrum so yeah if you compare <laughs> it to say the rococo let's say do other panelists have a, a comment on how to define joy before we move on to some of the audience questions yes uh, i i agree with alpa and i also have some twitchiness about the word uh, joy I prefer the word delight uh, rather than joy now, I was remembering something that I read ages ago about uh, that Walter Benjamin used to say that the perception of architecture is distracted, unlike the perception that we have of other forms of art. When you are seeing a painting or a sculptor, you are incredibly focused because you are going to see it, whereas architecture is the background of life. So in a sense, when it doesn't distract you very much, it's just there allowing life to happen, uh, then the joy comes from the actual, the act of actually living there. Having said that, when you ask uh, what is joy in architecture, remember something that we go to Florence very often, and uh, they used to have these wine doors in uh, in palazzis and, and, and houses and so on. There was this very tiny portals through which basically you could exchange wine. And every time that I see one that is very tiny and is a very small piece of architecture, I smile because there is a, a small act of delight and exchange between the private realm and the public realm that happens there and is delightful. But you have to pay attention to see it. So it's not shouting in your face, I have to be joyful. Yeah, it sounds rather like your point links in with what Alpa was saying that it's about the loose fit of architecture to enable humanity to flourish to its greatest extent and for humans to make the joy that they're so good at making. Finally, Lara and Frederick, did you want to comment on the, the question of what is joy? Yes, we did. 
I actually very much agree with uh, some of the things that have been said, especially by Alfredo and, and Alpa. Uh, maybe I will add to the point that architecture, I consider that it should be absolutely peripheral or secondary to, to human activity, uh, even though it's obviously a strong part of our day-to-day uh, -day experience. I think uh, part of the, the pleasure in the experience of architecture has to do with figuring it out, both figuring it out what's your place within it, but also figuring it out even like formally and geometrically. I think um, buildings that can be read, uh, not iconographically, but uh, perhaps in, in a more approachable stylistic way or even in a geometric way um, can become quite uh, pleasurable. And I also think maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, the, the joy of the architect, not only the joy of architecture, I think a lot of you were you were opening up by saying that is all pain and uh, and um, I mean it's hard but I honestly think uh, we have managed to find quite a lot of joy in the in the arguments and in the difficult moments and and overcoming those moments uh, of not knowing what to do or not knowing how to resolve it or uh, not knowing how it's going to turn out. I think. Uh, that's well, we had. Sorry, Frederick, go on. Yeah, another thing that I think is interesting to add just to the to this question, which there's clearly like maybe that was highlighted by Alpa and others that there's a kind of paradox almost in the in the word because joy is obviously a word that hints to something subjective. And obviously there's a lot of things about architecture that deals with the sensations of the body and this very subjective experience of where you are. But a lot of things have been described by others today is about enjoying others, enjoying architecture. I think there's a kind of important distinction to make there, like what pleasure or joy uh, an architectural experience or what architecture can do for you as one human being with one body and two eyes, etc. Just keeping you warm and all of these things and all of the added things of what Francis was talking about, what potentially the, the kind of uh, visual pleasure Rococo can offer and the bigger joy of, of kind of all humans in, in a city or in a neighborhood even. Um, and that's something very different. I think it's important to kind of keep in mind that we can talk about the very subjective joy of architecture versus the joy of architecture as a whole, because you never ever design architecture to be joyful for one person, not even if it's a house, really, because it's been for anyone who might visit that house. We've got a lovely comment in the box from Shumi who says that they've literally never met architects more joyful than when hard at work than space popular. <laughs> it's the drinks. Apparently, your your joy is weird. Uh, your jo oh no, hang on, sorry. Your joy is in stretching your capacity to making things. So it feels to me like there's a question here from Brian Quinn, which follows on very nicely. Could Brian Quinn please be given the floor to ask his question? Um, hello, everybody. Um, my question really was about whose joy are we talking about, really? Um, is it the joy that the architect gets from designing a building as an object or as a, in a particular form? Or is it really the everyday experience of the user, the person that maybe never goes in the building but walks past it every day or sees it from afar? Or the person who works in that building and maybe has to do you know, tasks that maybe are not very much to do with the building, but the building could maybe help those tasks be more joyful, 
more pleasant, more comfortable, um, you know, and I think particularly at the moment when we're seeing things like, you know, hospitals and other buildings under enormous pressure with staff that are highly stressed but delivering incredibly important work, is sort of how can a building deliver joy either collectively or individually or in small bits that can help people live and work in a better way. It sounded like also from reading the questions that Pierre Luigi Mastella Manarini, it's a great name, um, your question also seems to relate to that and I wondered if you'd like to add anything that Brian missed. Yes. Hi everyone. Hi. Um, yes, I was questioning the same thing. I was uh, thinking about if it's about the joy, the joy of as architects during the process when you are designing things and you have to think about an issue or you have to think about a situation and you need to come out with something that can help everyone else's life depending on the type of project you're working on or if it's more about architecture itself being joyful so it it's then the experience of something that has, has been done and thought in in a careful way and in a in a way that can be joyful for people then to live in because uh, especially i think especially now that we cannot enjoy the outside world as we normally do and you can question this you can think about uh, do i really miss something that it's outside has been created by someone as part of the architecture and that makes me joyful and happy so do our panel if you could raise your hand i'm sorry if i'm missing you raising your hand alpa do speak my apologies if i'm missing you raising your hand i keep getting out of speaker view for some reason i can't, yeah, I can't seem to stay in gallery view me neither uh i just got two things i want to say to that um one is this thing about the joy how much joy an architect feels in designing and i think the the big thing we're missing is like how much agency architects have in schemes a lot of the time and what power structures exist. I mean, architects always have to work for someone, more or less. So there's kind of like how much agency you have within that to feel joy personally in, in, in evolving a scheme. You know, it might be more joyful to work on a building like the Kremlin than a mixed use scheme in Nine Elms. You might not have a choice either way. So that's just one thing about agency. Before you go on, could you say a little bit about in what way you think architects have or don't have agency? Well, I guess because uh, I work in a local authority, uh, most of the schemes are developer led. So, you know, the architect is really working to producing kind of maximum efficiencies in terms of floor space and viability and so on for a developer. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that being the best way, but I think that's a reality that we kind of have to acknowledge in terms of how much joy architects are going to get from developing some of these schemes. Um, and and I guess that leads to the second point I was going to say, which is that, you know, it would be nice if developers uh, brought those schemes forward more with the, with, the, the, with the view in mind of how you, how the user of those, users of those buildings are going to experience joy or, or have a good experience. What's the emotional experience of people using these buildings? And, you know, at the moment, uh, 
across London, there are a number of co-living schemes, for example, that are still underway. And I think we can all say right now that we can comprehend how awful it would be to live in like 16 square meters. So we can understand that the, you know, the experience of living, uh, you know, what that would be like for some of these schemes. And I think, you know, it would be, it would be good. It would be right if uh, developers took that on board, but I guess that's not necessarily the case. I think that's reality we probably have to acknowledge. So are you saying that the, the agency of the architect is such that even if they desire to create maximum utilitarian joy amongst the majority of people who encounter their schemes, they're not enabled to do that because of the lack of agency? I would say on a majority of schemes at the moment in somewhere like London, yeah, that's what I would think. Hugh, a comment? Hugh is muted. Whoever's in charge of the muting? My muted. Um, yeah, I, I think that was one of the key things when we thought about the topic was in relation to this idea of how, how front and central is it, you know, empathy for end users, empathy for people. I mean, obviously something like housing um, production is, is a huge part of that when you're dealing with larger sections of the population. Um, and obviously there's a lot of other agendas um, at stake and it's, the, it's putting the, even if architects have a, uh, have a desire to make um, places uh, of quality and to improve people's uh, daily lives, how much of that actually gets through the system. And what's really in the face of that, what is the architectural community really doing? I mean, I sometimes wonder whether we are not fronting up to the fact that we're really a bit part player and we don't have the control that we you know, talk about when we look back into the history of architecture. I mean, the liberating democratization of architecture through the 20th century, um, where is that in, in, the, in, the modern, in the modern world in terms of work for the masses? That's a really interesting point. And I think maybe in my fr frippery at the beginning, that was one of the off-putting parts of my experience personally, was that I didn't like the lack of agency and the lack of control. And actually as an academic, I was vastly more autonomy on a day-to-day -day basis. Alfredo? Well, uh, not often I quote Philip Johnson, but he used to say that architecture is the second oldest uh, profession in the world, in the history of mankind. And yes, I agree that, uh, yeah, we work as architects for someone. We tend not to work for ourselves. And uh, that up to a certain point uh, frames the agency uh, that we can have in the decision making. There are two aspects of that uh, question in my view. Uh, on the one hand, is the reluctance of architects to engage on those uh, questions of developing the city and growth of a city and so on uh, before then the architectural decisions come to the table. Very few architects are actually interested in, well, in the development models and uh, in the development of a city uh, because most of us are interested in designing buildings, in designing objects and so on. Uh, that is, that's uh, obviously uh, aspects of, of personal choice. But uh, the real decisions of, uh, of the growth of the city and so on, and why do we develop in certain way of, of, or another, happens before most architects are involved in, uh, in projects. But also we have to remember at the same time that cities are the byproduct of trade and they have always been the byproduct of trade and, and, and economical activities. And it's very humbling to read 
the issues that uh, Michelangelo was having with the church in relation to propose one thing and the, the, the Pope then changed and then he has to do another proposal or Bramante happens the same or Palladio happens the same or so on, happens the same, is the history of what is make, doing architecture and then is how you place yourself in relation to that reality. Can, can I add to that? Mm, please do. Um, I, I think maybe we are fo very focused on this idea that um, the, having decision-making power <laughs> is like the best possible situation or, or uh, I don't know how we came to this when we were talking about joy both in the design process and maybe in the experience of architecture. I find it quite interesting and maybe something where we can shift uh, our ideas is in the fact that uh, actually being left alone making decisions to me that's actually the really scary quite awful situation and even i personally find a certain degree of joy in figuring out how to best communicate with someone that you are suddenly working with and maybe you have quite uh, different views um and at the beginning it might be a bit hard because you just don't really understand each other these being a client which might be a developer or or or, or somebody else uh, that is a, a, just a private client and and it might really take a while i i find a lot of satisfaction in figuring out how do we communicate and what are you about and what is it how can i serve you best and how can i contribute to to what you need or what you are expecting of me um, so if you operating as part of a, a complex, complex system with yeah, lots I, of different unpredictable elements might be a very joyful experience. Yeah, I think the, the sort of social skills that one needs to develop are, um, are actually so, partly the most interesting part of the job. And I find it very liberating to, uh, to take that as, as, as part of the task. Like, mm. I mean, I think what the way we got into agency, correct me if I'm wrong here, Alpa, was that Alpa was saying that if the, in a way, the architect's decision making about the, the end user's joy or otherwise may often be taken away from them because they're not the brief setters. Um, who has got their hand up? Lee? Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to, I think some of the questions that came from the audience were about whether we should be talking about the yeah. joy which architecture as a product creates or are we talking about the joy that yeah. we have as creators and i think the reason that we're in a situation talking about it actually is rooted in the same issue and the same problem so the reason which a lot of architects have kind of started to feel like they're losing delight and joy in the process of production of architecture and the reason that we're looking at architecture and thinking is that joyful is that delightful <clears throat> come back to the same thing it's basically who owns the process who owns the product who is it who's asking us to do things and why are they asking us to do those things and so ultimately as a profession we've either not bothered to make or we have lost the argument for the value of the light and joy within our built environment and so we're now in a point that when we're asked to design a school or we're asked to place to work or asked to design a place to live the primary concern usually from the people asking us to do that is how much money is someone going to kind of make as a return on investment and at the end of that process if it's a public body are they going to be able to justify that spend to a skeptical public who have been conditioned through the media and through conditioned through 
a kind of neoliberal economic model that's pushed every day and every day to say that looks too expensive. You've wasted money on that. That you, you know, you've been extravagant. You've been, and so for me, the issue is what we're being asked to do and why we're being asked to do it. And that is resulting in a process that a lot of us find disheartening and a product that a lot of the public don't actually find joyful at the end of that process. You know, we're creating shite because people are asking us to produce shit and they're paying people a lot of money to produce that crap. And unfortunately, 90% of the architects are following the money because we've got to live, we've got to survive, we've got to eat, we've got to uh, raise kids, we've got to feed our families, we've got to feed ourselves. So I understand why people do that and why they follow that. But ultimately, in doing so, we've not managed to kind of make the argument that joy, delight, participation, agency, engagement are actually really good for our well-being. They're actually really good for our economy, if you want to make that argument. They're really good for people's sense of self. It's really good for people's productivity. Um, and, and I think that's where we've kind of failed as a profession. As a consequence, we've stopped enjoying doing it in a lot of cases, not all cases, and we've also stopped maybe enjoying what we're producing at the end of that process as well. Steve, you had a follow-up. Yeah, just to, to follow up on, on what Lee was saying, it, it strikes me that there's um, joy is quite subjective, which is, I'm, I'm, I'm getting from a lot of what people are saying. Um, I'm kind of trying to put things into the camp of um, Benjamin, going back to what Alfredo was saying, because in his stuff, The Storyteller, there was an aspect of uh, what Benjamin was saying about the author and authorship and how I think Alfredo was suggesting there was a joy in the control. And I think this was um, picked up by Space Popular, Aaron Frederick, that we need a little bit of um, power and control. And I think Shumi picked up on one of her questions too. Whereas what Lee's saying is that this kind of common narrative, this storyteller, the one that's not authored, the one that goes from gossip and rumor and, and, and spreading is, is, is a different aspect of joy, isn't it, from, from the authorship. And what I see is, is that this question of joy is perhaps a little bit subjective. Um, of course it is. Um, and I wonder who's on the side of um, joy in architecture being something that you can control and shape yourself, as in Benjamin's author and authorship. Or if you enjoy the kind of more, um, it's what Alpha was saying, allowing things to happen, thinking of the user, making the things a little bit looser. So, mm. well, it struck me that one of the 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 definitions of joy, which we seem to be able to agree on, is that it comes with a loose fit that gives space for people to make their own lives within it, and maybe that's something that isn't subjective but the questions of joy and aesthetics and so forth are inevitably going to be subjective somebody had their hand up but my screen has popped away from gallery view again so can you put your hand up again i didn't see who it was no it wasn't anybody francis you've been very yeah, quiet yeah, yeah i mean I, I didn't have my hand up but there's a good point there yeah. i think it, the two different things types of joy there's one which is the joy of the architect yeah. and the other is the joy that the building gives and I think what Lee said was very interesting, that in, <clears throat> in some way that they're related, in that if someone isn't enjoying designing because they're in this kind of capitalist trap, um, then the building's not gonna be very good. 
I mean, I think that's interesting. I'm not sure it's true because sometimes the best things are done grudgingly, weirdly. Like apparently no one wanted to do Casablanca, the film. Um, it was just, it was one of those projects that just happened. I mean, I, Ruskin also had this idea that uh, the problem with classical architecture was that it was production, you know, hundreds of Doric columns all the way around Berkeley Square, utterly boring. He much preferred Venice, where every capital was carved uniquely and it expressed the craftsman's love of stone, where he came from, all of that. Um, I mean, the danger of that is you get architects doing their own thing and making buildings which they've enjoyed doing, which are inherently joyless. You know, there, there is no, there is the, the joy of taking a pram up seven storeys. Uh, there, there isn't a joy in that. Um, I think, I think function, when it comes to function, um, you know, trying to live in a few square feet, there's no, there's no joy to be had. Uh, so I think with function, it isn't subjective. Um, I think with aesthetics, it's taste and it is. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I've just probably messed everything up, but... Um, I mean, I'd, I'd just not like at all. Say, I'd just like to say in terms um, of... Just before you speak, Lee, um, are you responding directly to what Francis said? Because Hugh has had his hand up for ages. Um, I just want to quickly respond to Francis' point. Yeah, you know, that yeah. I am not an advocate for removing constraint and adversity in the design process. What I'm an advocate for is questioning the motives that create that constraint and adversity. So mm. I will quite happily... Uh, create something with a budget of only £2,000 and make it out of not much, make it out of old pallets, make it out of wood, make it whatever, do whatever I can with the most limited resources to achieve something for someone, right? But what I'm interested in is doing that for someone who is asking me for something, not on the basis of how much they're going to make off the back of me kind of trying to reduce the end product to the minimum, what I'm interested in is actually saying how much delight and how much joy can I bring to um, any situation um, based on that situation, understanding the value of that constraint. You know, so when the value of that constraint is so someone else can earn a shitload of money, I'm not interested in playing that game. When the constraint that is born on me is actually adversity in a really hard situation, social situation, cultural situation where we've not got much to play with, but we're going to do the utmost and the best that we can, then I'll work in all kinds of adversity to kind of make that a reality. I'm just not interested in doing it um, for a motivation that I find personally, ethically problematic or offensive. That's just what I want to say. So I love constraint. I love adversity. And I find a lot of joy in coming through that. But it's who am I doing that for? And what is the motivation for doing that that's important to, to myself? And do you, do you think that's related also to, so that's, you're talking about perhaps your own experience of joy, but is that also related to the type of thing that you might produce and how joyful it is to experience? Well, yeah, because obviously, I mean, if people <clears throat> experience a, a product that is the result of constraint and adversity, but what they see is something that is far greater than the sum of its parts and far greater than the expectation through which that was originally conceived then a lot of people share in that delight and a lot of people find joy in that thing that's produced. But if people at the end of that process see something that is less than what they expected because someone else has decided 
that they see the value in making a shed load of money out of it. And as a result of kind of reduced what that kind of end thing is going to be back to its bare bones, then, you know, that's like I say, a kind of adversity that I don't find joyful working under and which I think will ultimately produce a product that other people won't find delightful or joyful yeah. either. We've got a nice question here, very simple one-liner about serendipity. I've now lost who it was. Let me just, sorry, I'm scrolling through my chat here. Well, I'll just, oh, here we go. Sam Oxley, do you want to say a bit about serendipity? Is Sam Oxley in the room? Perhaps not. In that case, Warren Lever, who has asked a question about simplicity which I think possibly is related to what you're saying, Lee, that a small budget doesn't necessarily preclude a really creative and interesting solution that might meet a lot of people's needs. Warren Lever? Hello, Warren. Just let me unmute you, you're muted. Oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, yeah, but just a very quick question about whether all buildings have to be very expensive. I certainly grew up in the West Midlands and remember go to my nans who lived in a sort of 70s block of flats. And I always remember the joy of being a kid and playing in the big hallways and the light rooms and the space that was afforded there. It wasn't necessarily a hugely expensive building, but certainly there was a degree of joy there, the landscape outside and that sort of thing. And I often see buildings that are very simple and do very simple things, such as facing the street, entrances onto, 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 the, onto the street and things like that. Nice, light, airy dwellings reasonable amount of outside space uh, and wonder whether actually we sometimes search too much for um, joy in very expensive things. I've also seen some very expensive buildings which are utter crap to be honest with you. So just a, a question around that. Mm. And uh, Rosanna Vitiello has also made a very nice point. Rosanna would you like to make that in person? Yeah which, which one sorry? Uh, the the one about uh, collaboration with other disciplines, which seems to fit with the idea that a purpose of architecture is to make space for life. Yeah, I, my question is, if we're looking for joy, why don't we look at the people who do it every day, who make, who bring joy to us and see what we can learn from them, um, which might be, you know, chefs it might be, who, who create beautiful meals for us. It might be our kids who kind of get us to see the world in a different light. It could be a club you know, host or promoter who gives us a great night out. So I think we have to sort of understand what it takes to make joy. And very often I think those are time-based things and they're not necessarily literally set in stone. They're not set in architecture. But mm. if we can make some space for it, so someone else commented and said, oh, developers aren't interested in understanding what joy means because they just want to replace it with floor space. Well, if floor space can be filled with joy and be profitable, then great. That's what a club does, as an example. Um, and I think it's about understanding some of those other perspectives and being humble enough to also say, yeah, we don't have all the answers. We're not, we're not the owners of joy. You all are. So tell us what you want to, you know, for us to, mm. um, to, to, to create the platform for you to do that. And following up from that, Melissa Wolford, I think your comment really seems to support what Rosanna is saying. Um, yeah. I mean, I just think that, I mean, we, you know, we keep talking about, post-occupancy evaluations, but I just think that there's not enough being done to make this a collective effort so that we can all share the feedback that's coming in from this to learn as an industry. I think 
I think this is being done in individual practices, but just not enough across the board. And I think that something needs to be done to, to make this happen. Mm. Peter Murray, you, you had a little quote there, which seems to fit nicely with this discussion. Uh, yes, I just, uh, well, Ruskin uh, w was uh, quoted uh, earlier and I thought that this was uh, very relevant to how we uh, deliver delight, uh, but without uh, necessarily spending huge amounts of money, which I think is a, a fundamental issue actually in how we deliver uh, more housing, more affordable housing, uh, particularly, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm involved at, at Barking and Dagenham and, and they've just produced a, a, a design guide. And a lot of that is around how do you deliver really good quality, delightful housing, which actually people in uh, Barking and Dagenham can afford, or the people who live in Barking and Dagenham can afford. And I think that actually is uh, joyful when you can provide uh, people with places to live in, which uh, they find they can have joyful lives in. Uh, and I would say that's one of the uh, biggest challenges we have. Uh, I, I was watching a Zoom yesterday with uh, uh, Alejandro Aravena and uh, his uh, delivering homes to uh, people in Chile and Mexico. And uh, I thought there was a way that actually he delivered uh, joy to people's lives. And I, I, I think that's what architecture is about. So I wonder if, ah, you've got something to say. Excellent, Frederick, please do speak. Yeah, I, I think that just summarizing the kind of range of, of how the discussion is following up, I think that positive aspects of architecture would be a better word to describe what we're actually talking about because many things like what, what Peter was just talking about and aspects that, that Alpasbe brought up uh, and others talk more about the, the bigger positive impacts that architecture can have or the aspects of architecture that can be positive, unlike or different from joyful, I would say. I, I think that's the way I'm seeing how this discussion is. And the reason why perhaps we're not talking directly about the things that if we would follow a dictionary, what joyful maybe means is because it's so incredibly difficult. We often get pinned down to talk about things like beauty or joy or these kind of things that are incredibly difficult to talk about. And quite often it kind of then zooms out to talk about, okay, let's talk about the positive aspects because something can be positive for a civilization or for an individual or for a community. Um, and indeed, that's maybe a more interesting way to, to talk about it. And I actually, I would suggest uh, just, um, let's see, Jane, if you wanted to take something else up, but because I have a question for, for Francis and Alpha. Great, yeah. I'd love to, to hear. Yes, please. Based on, on the two different, if I'm reading too much into it maybe, but uh, the two different position potentially. If yes. joy in architecture is something that requires knowledge, if it's something that can be learned, if you can be better, if you can get better at, 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 enjoying. at enjoying architecture, and then if, if, uh, if it's related to knowledge, basically that the more knowledge you have, the more you can enjoy it. As a, are you asking this question of, of, of the architect or of the experiencer of architecture? I, I, I would say that both the points that were made by Francis and Alpa were both not about the architect. Mm -hmm. I, I would argue here that it is potentially interesting to hear about 
the joy of designing architecture, but I think it's utterly irrelevant actually to, yeah. it might be fun, but I think for this discussion, it's like, who cares yeah. if people think it's, thinks, I think it's fun to design a building or not. Yeah. And also it's a whole other very complicated question because it might be fun designing a building, but it might be not fun to work in particular architects practices or it might be great fun to work in practices but no fun to design the building yeah, it's very exactly. complicated but i think you're i think that's a really nice nice point to push I think the, alpha was trying to yeah. answer oh i'm so sorry yeah, no, alpha. yeah. <laughs> i keep i keep losing my gallery view go on alpha if i understand the question correctly uh i don't think it's about specialist knowledge it's it's just about a bit of empathy you know i think it just comes back i think if i'm summarizing what people have said it comes back to intent you know what is the intent when you're starting on a project and i agree with lee to an extent i think architects have sort of given up uh their role in pushing what the intent behind a scheme could be but it's just about believing that the intent is for you know making people's lives a bit better uh, and, and actually, I think that's that's what it comes down to. I think one of the questions in the chat box was, you know, is joy more expensive? Um, no, it depends on what, what your starting position is. Like, what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to achieve a cheap building or a building that suits the users? Then, you know, one might be more expensive or not, but they're different questions. Yeah, so, but I, I, I would categorize intent as, as partially knowledge. Like, for, for as, as a small example, we we were based in Bangkok for five years where a lot of the architecture that people go to to socialize in is shopping malls um, and people generally largely enjoy these spaces and have full lives in these spaces and uh, you know you they obviously know that they are commercially driven but if you have a conversation about it then then you know it's relating to the knowledge of how something like that might affect the wider world of the place where you live in like if all of these places you, you spend your life in are commercial, then maybe less energy spent on the public ones. And it, I would argue that that relates to like, to knowledge right? and kind of being engaged with the knowledge of how architecture is produced perhaps. In, in to an extent, but I think again, it's just about empathy and curiosity and coming back to one of the comments that someone else made, you know, like being willing to work with other disciplines or, you know, whether you work with other disciplines or not, I think it just comes back to the point of, are you interested in finding out, uh, you know, what the users of the building you're designing, you know, need? Mm. Uh, in which case, are you prepared to speak to other people and find out about that? And are you prepared to embed all of that into a scheme? So to an extent, knowledge, but I think it can be, you know, I think it can be learned. I mean, I, I, I guess why I'm having this reaction is I, I don't like to think that it's like special knowledge that architects have and, you know, no offense, but like quotes from Ruskin and so on. You know, I think it can come from discussions with people. Yeah. Can I just get some, Hugh, I'm going to come to you in a second. I just wanted to get some clarity from you, Frederick, about whether you, I didn't, I don't think I fully understood what question you were asking. Are you asking whether or not it's the understanding of the intention of the architect that allows a person to enjoy a place? Or are you talking about knowledge of architecture? Or are you talking about the architect's knowledge of what people want? I meant just a human being who is in or around architecture, which we normally are like throughout all our lives, unless we, we explore the natural world extensively. So just regardless if you're involved in the process of making architecture, which is, you know, like 0.0001% of the humans that actually experience architecture. So it's just, you're a human being, you're in architecture. Mm. So it's em you're em talking about empathy, essentially. 
the, the, well, the capacity to imagine yourself as every man and the every person. And yeah, I guess. Or if you say, like, well, this building is really amazing. Did you know that it was built by a dictator? And it's like, oh, I didn't know that. Now I know it. I enjoy it less. You know, or, right. Hugh, you had a point to make. Yeah, it was, it was sort of off the back of um, what Lee was saying. I, I think um, in formulating the topic, you know, we always hang it on a, on a term joy, which is a, a pro provocation, really. And it, it may well not be the right, um, right term, as, as people have alluded to. But I think it is about um, if architects within the built um, the system that uh, decides what buildings are, if architects are seen to be the defenders of you know certain values where others are not they're driven by other other values be it monetary or otherwise um are we doing enough to um uphold uh, those values and get more of that within buildings and i think i get i agree with lee that i feel like we're, we've been marginalized we've become marginalized and my question really is what are architects doing about it as a profession because really it's a percentage game 99% of the buildings that are built, not our, you know, not what would necessarily be termed as architecture, but 99% of the buildings throughout the country are utter dross. That is the environment that is created for the majority of people. And certainly when it comes to housing and square footage and the things that drive that, joy is a, a very distant ideal that doesn't really have a place. And so my question really comes back to really what are architects? Are they um, accepting the reality of the commercial environment that we work through in the, the turn of the 20th into the 21st century. And if so, if we are addressing that and accepting it for what it is, what are we going to do about it? Because actually all we're doing is we're helping people push values that probably we don't really uh, think are the most important ones. Mm, it looks like Alpa, you've got something I just to have say. a very quick, very quick response, which is... Yeah. Uh, because you said what are architects doing in response just to that? just a warning Alfredo I'm going to bring you in next because you haven't spoken for a while okay mm -hmm. go on uh, I would say a lot of architects are moving out of architecture and working in local authorities like I am because you have more influence on briefs and proposals and you're not working for the market you're working for a local authority to an extent is linked to the market but the motive is different so I come back to that thing of intent yeah. so that is what a lot of architects are doing yep Alfredo? Right. Uh, well, well, first one clarification in relation to that Walter Benjamin thing. I like the fact that he was pointed out that the perception of architecture is distracted. It's a background. It's not about the point about control. It's about modesty and, and being more humble of what is the actual role of architects in the provision of joy. Uh, because I like the point that Rosanna was making. At the end of the day, if we understand architecture as a background for life, joy comes from the act of living and not uh, by architects adding meaning uh, to or, or money or whatever you want to uh, uh, talk about in buildings. Uh, our role is to provide a background and it's hard enough just to put the front door in the right place and pour the, the windows in the right place so that the light comes in the right manner. That is hard enough. And uh, I like also some of the other comments I was talking about a very humble and simply designed buildings that just provide a nice a space to live. I also like the point that Frederick was making in relation to shopping centers, because this might sound as a provocation, but I think that one of the most, uh, most uh, joyful, and I don't personally might enjoy it, but one of the most joyful spaces in the whole of London is Westfield Stratford, in Stratford. Uh, that is uh, one of the most popular 
basically uh, spaces, I think, of this uh, city. It's incredibly inclusive. Uh, and people seem to be enjoying themselves very, very much there. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily align with some of the, our, maybe what we view as architects, what joy should be. Yeah, but- so, There's been a few people, sorry, mm -hmm. go ahead. I just want to say it's fine mentioning like Westfield shopping malls, people go there, they enjoy them, whatever. But there's a, but, but <laughs> you're being mind fucked into going there. Like don't, <laughs> let's not, let's not pretend that there's not a price to pay for enjoying those situations. If I start taking pictures in those places, I'll get hauled out. If I start dancing in those places, I'll get told to stop. If I start painting on someone's shop window, I'll get arrested. If I start kind of jumping up and down like a maniac or doing- There are 50 million people, 50 million people that go there every year that disagree with you. <laughs> and there are, it is very interesting that uh, the modern is the most successful museum in the world and it has six million visitors a year on this uh, by the way i'm not uh, <laughs> I, I don't particularly enjoy it but at the same time i get a little bit twitchy when we have uh, the, we pass judgment in relation to how some people might be enjoying these type of places that uh, not necessarily agree with the way in which we understand public realm or public space and so on there's been a quite a few comments in the in the box regarding the uh, the difference between architects or how architects see themselves and uh, civilians. <laughs> and uh, Winda Samra has pointed out that nobody knows who architects are. <laughs> and I wonder if Satwinda, you'd like to to make a point on that. And I'd also after that, I'd like to hear from Fran maybe before that actually, Francis, could you give us your take on this conversation? Sorry, which which aspect of it? I mean, the, uh, last the, the aspect, I suppose, bringing in that the, what what does it mean that gazillions of people love Westfield, and most architects wouldn't sort of lovingly design Westfield as a place of joy? Maybe. Um, yeah, I, I guess fundamentally, um, it's what an what is an architect. I, I think the trouble is architects see themselves as much bigger than they are. Um, I think a lot of architects see themselves as more politicians than architects. Um, I, I, again, it's a huge, I mean, the trouble is architecture, architects such a problematic term, you know, like God is the architect of the universe, you get computer <laughs> architects, the whole idea that the architect is the person to control things. But the reality is that the architects are quite a small cog and they don't really have a right to be anything more. Um, that, that, that's, my, that's probably not a very popular view, but I, I think, you know, if you're an ethical person, you'll take on ethical things, you'll, you know, you'll be an ethical farmer, whatever else. Um, I think in a way, the problem is people are trying to expand what an architect is. Um, you are given a job, you do it, is my, my view on that. Um, yeah, but first and foremost, I'm a citizen, right? And like, I am an architect, but I think whether it's architects wanting to be more than just an architect and have a kind of greater civic role or a greater civic responsibility, or whether it's someone who works hum you know, humbly every day in a market wanting to also be a politician and engage in civic society or public society, whether it's the taxi driver who wants to have an opinion and try and kind of reach for something greater than everyday life, we all have a right to do that, you know, and, and I think that actually 
you know, there isn't enough architects wanting to be politicians. There isn't enough architects wanting to be political. There isn't enough architects wanting to have an opinion. There isn't enough architects wanting to take a stand. And at the moment, it seems like there is because there's a kind of very vocal minority, you know, bunch of gobshites like myself who might kind of make it sound like there is. But the reality is, you know, most architects are just kind of getting on with the job, getting paid to do with the job. And actually, I think more of us maybe need to have an opinion about things and have an agenda and kind of give a shit about more than just the production of the artifact. Satwinder Samra, do you have a, a comment on that? Hi, everybody. Um, what a wonderful conversation. Um, I just wanted to uh, make a point about uh, how architects actually engage and how people, other people understand what they actually do. Um, I'm just going to, a couple of years ago, I got involved with a program on children's television called The Dengineers, where we design dens for kids. And um, what's interesting is if I mentioned that in a conversation, um, everybody wants to know about television, but on the back of that, they want to talk about architecture. And um, it's a fantastic way of engaging with a broader public. And what's been interesting working on the show is that we get complex ideas around joy, space, movement, structure, cantilevers, uh, refraction of light, you, you name it. We, we, we talk about it and we do it very succinctly and we're not allowed to use big words. We don't talk about liminal space or shadow gaps. And, and for me, it's been a very enlightening experience about how do we actually communicate? What, it is, what is it that we actually do? And how can that have an impact or a positive effect on, on the people that might use our sort of spaces and, and our products? And I, I think that ultimately we do have an image and an identity problem where we've forgotten how to communicate in simple terms about um, the, the wonderful things that we actually do as, as designers and architects. All my dens have shadow gaps. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if we could all talk a bit more. Can I maybe? I think that's a great point. I really do. I think language is a massive issue. I think, like, you know, we speak in a language that only a lot of architects <coughs> and designers can understand. And at the point at which, I mean, I find that leading an undergraduate course, which actually has an intake in Preston that is is from very different backgrounds than maybe what I used to teach when I taught at the Macintosh School of Architecture at the Glasgow School of Art. You know, the, and actually, you know, a lot of the students that um, come into the architecture school that I now am engaged in don't understand or don't, aren't interested necessarily in a kind of language that immediately alienates them and makes them feel disenfranchised from something that actually in essence can be quite simple and can be beautiful in its simplicity as well. So I think like you're, you're totally right, talking about liminal space, talking about ateliers, Pilates, talking about stuff that actually can be described in much simpler and more accessible terms. Um, uh, it's important for us to recognize that sometimes when we speak, people aren't understanding what we're saying. And if they can't understand what we're saying, then they're not gonna access what it is. And how do you think that pertains to the question of joy? Um, well, it's about accessibility again. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of, yeah, going back to uh, teaching architecture, I mean, a lot, at the point at which my students start to, you know, stop turning up and to start, you know, stop engaging or stop uh, being creative and stop being productive is the point in which they feel 
uh, kind of alienated at the point at which they think that the course and architectural education is no longer accessible to them. And usually that's because they feel that them being made to, that they feel like they're being made to feel stupid or not knowledgeable or not kind of in tune with the kind of discourse and, and the discussion. They're worried about the way they're going to say things, what they're going to produce, how they're going to be judged, you know, and, and, and usually that is about the way we communicate and the language we use. And I think that's the same with the general public at large. You know, people stop having joy um, and stop feeling joy within the process of architecture and the product of architecture at the point where it doesn't feel accessible to them anymore, at the point at which it alienates them. And, and, and I think, um, like, like in that comment then, language is, is a huge part of that, the way we communicate, the way we describe what we do and the way we describe how we do it. Mm. Uh, oh yeah we've got some wiggly hands there that's nice i i actually agree with you and funnily enough sat winder who just commented was my undergraduate tutor in third year when i was a lazy student and one of the things that one of the tutors said in week one of first year was you'll come in here being ordinary people and you will leave being architects but when you're an architect try and remember what it's like to be an ordinary person oh. <laughs> It's, but I, I, really, I found that terrifying, actually, rather than inspiring. Um, Can I follow up to that? Maybe? Yeah, please do. Yes, uh, I, I wanted to maybe make a, a book recommendation of something that we came across uh, recently uh, when, as we were uh, working on uh, an exhibition for our IBA called Freestyle, where we actually um, were working uh, with a group of uh, high school students um, on the topic of architectural style. And that was incredibly uh, fun. Because, <laughs> uh, of course, uh, like forget any kind of lingo and, and, and also try to show them why would this be an interesting topic generally. Anyhow, in our research, we came across, which we didn't know about before, uh, the writer um, Osbert Lancaster, who has a, a book about style uh, that uh, it literally begins with the architecture history without tears. So I think if in his writing is also wonderful and incredibly accessible. So I think if there is someone that can teach us about joy in architecture, I would definitely. Great, put the book, uh, put the book recommendation in the chat. Um, yeah, I think the book is coming also. Oh, great. I think it's our Maybe one. we can start just with something simple that there is just manners good manners and bad manners. Is that uh, really wonderful good manners in architecture by uh, Tristan Edwards? Well, please do put these book recommendations into the chat. Uh, Francis, you had a, a word yeah, to say. Yeah, I, 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 actually that was what I was going to say. I mean, it is, it's a slightly different type of joy than trying to give people nice places to live and make most of their lives. I, there is, a, a, I think, a lot of joy in um, understanding art history uh, and yes. going down a high street and and it's I mean it's it's completely superficial and meaningless on some level but is it's it very direct if you go down and say oh there's an Edwardian cinema there's yeah. a Victorian such and such they've done that because of this um, I think in the same way that understanding anything there's it's a very basic form of joy in a way knowledge that that sort of knowledge you were asking the question I was asking earlier, yeah. I wonder also, is there a, you know, I mean, you said it's a, a sort of superficial knowledge, but actually I think that, that 
the embodied traditional history which our architectural environment both represents but also creates isn't superficial at all because it makes us constantly and it remakes us and that's a really fundamental role of architecture and and a huge yeah. responsibility responsibility for architects i mean i suppose in a way the problem is it has become kind of rarefied and it's just for people who who know the terms and whatever else but i, I think that's a good point that someone like osbert lancaster will talk about styles of architecture with a lot of humor and accessibility um and i think it's a very direct form of, of enjoying architecture for anyone really but i don't agree that um that being able to place what you see within like the canon of architectural history is like necessary for being able to extract joy from it. I mean, what the joy that you might get from some of those, you know, like an Edwardian building is the time and care and craft that's gone into it. And you might be able to recognize that without having, you know, without being able to place it in a, in a point in history. And it's functionality. I think that, or, or it's because I, at least when I was speaking about tradition, I, I'm not talking about knowledge of tradition. Yeah. I'm talking about the cultural tradition that we're all living every day and that we pass on to each other through our actions. Sorry, go but ahead. I, think, I don't think we're saying that you have to know it in order to enjoy it, but that you might find a certain joy in doing so. And, and certainly like working on this exhibition about style with these students that had not been studying architecture history before, I think they, well, they all found that it was actually quite enjoyable to unlock that. And then you sort of put on new goggles and your experience of the city is, uh, is, a, is a different one because uh, you find some interest and satisfaction in like starting to recognize things and to link them together and understand that there is a history in how uh, things have developed and why maybe they have uh, come to be in a certain way. I don't, I'm not saying that you have to do that in order to enjoy architecture, but that this is a way of uh, enjoying architecture that certain writers have consciously made, uh, tried to make really, really approachable. And this was in answering or like in connection to, to, the, to the topic of the language that we use and how the language that we use to talk about architecture may or may not uh, be inclusive. Mm. Well, the world in, in general does change when you change the glasses that you look at it through. And that's true for all sorts of different perspectives that you might take. Um, I'm gonna come on to you, Hugh, but before I do, I just wanted to put into everyone's mind in a minute, as our architecture, as our architecture, I'm going to get you to ask your question about the current world crisis. But Hugh, please go first. Well, I just wanted to say something very, very quickly, because um, I've probably spoken enough, but um, it was on the issue of care, conveying a sense of care and, you know, if you think of things like the Edwardian or the Victorian Terrace, there's just little, very small details, you know, um, either in the tiling around the doorway, the way the door's set back, you know, there's a bit of stained glass in it. And, you know, anyone buying a house like that feels like, oh, right, somebody's actually invested um, some time and effort into creating something because they care about the end product and, and who's going to. And I wondered whether it's that thing that is, is the thing that might be missing. As a, as a means of communication, because I think that's just a very emotive thing that people pick up on straight away. It might be subliminal, they might not notice it, but you go, yeah, actually, it's an accumulation of small um, uh, offerings, if you like, through which can convert, be conveyed through a building. And I wonder whether that's the thing that's actually missing in a lot of modern architecture, that it feels 
yeah, well, it is what it is. You know, it's a white wall and a bit of cheap skirting or in, in a residential context. Yeah, mm, well, those are the things which are easy to engineer out in, in terms of cost. Yeah, yeah um, but those are the things that are, in a way, the joyful aspects, if you want to call mm. it that. And they're the things that that's what sort of leads sort of alluding to in terms of communication, I think, about how to, how to, how to, it's not about talking about architecture, it's about architecture letting it speak for itself, isn't it? People are intelligent enough to recognise quality. Yeah. Alper, you had something, and Francis also has his hand up. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, well, that's why I think it just comes back to this thing of intent, and the, you know, do you start from a position of, like, understanding what the human experience is and trying to design a building around that? That's all. Francis? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, the thing about quality and how we, we love things that are good quality. And it, I, I, a while ago, I watched this fascinating TED talk about these axe heads that um, cavemen made literally before we were human. And they worked out that they, couldn't, they didn't make these axe heads just for function because there were too many of them and they were, they were too big for a hand. They, they were just made as works of art and they were made absolutely beautifully, completely symmetrically. Um, and really all there was, was the enjoyment of someone taking a lot of time making something really beautiful. <clears throat> and it, it's amazing that something like that goes way back before language, that enjoyment of, of, of things done well in craft. I think that's the key thing. It's like, I think a lot of people, regardless of, you know, what your knowledge is, what your education is, who you are and where you're from, understand the visualization of things done well, like Francis was saying there. I mean, in, in Preston, where I'm from, even like the Victorian terraced houses that were built for workers um, to accommodate those working in the mills have got beautiful detail over the doorways. You know, they've kind of got a beautiful corner um, where you might just get a little special curved brick at the point at which that terrace turns a corner. They've got um, the, the sill detail, you know, so even, you know, at, even in a kind of typology, which, you know, was, um, is at its most minimal in terms of its spatial requirements and is at its most economic in terms of um, its scale, its materiality and functionality, is still, you know, 150 years later, able to bring joy and delight to, to anyone, to myself as an architect, to my mum as a layperson, to anyone who just passes down and walks down the street, you know, and that's, that's housing for people mm. at the time who were the most, you know, li li living at the time in, in, in the least uh, well-off circumstances, but there's still that, that those moments in there that mm. are the visualization of something done well. And we're all very familiar now with our homes <laughs> in, in a way that we probably never have been before. Sorry. Can I add speaking. to these points? Um, yes, very briefly. I would really like to get onto as our architect's question. Please do, but briefly. Yeah, well, I just want to add that uh, linking that to also the question of where we have agency is perhaps uh, that in the trying to, or we, can, uh, we can have the choice to introduce um, construction methods that require a level of craft that we know will possibly deliver um, a, 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 
a better product. Um, so I think as architects, we can also think when we can do that and in which areas we can push for things to be done by somebody in particular, which has a particular uh, expertise that uh, might might bring a lot of... Mm. I'm really enjoying the way that the conversation has taken a turn for the material and the practical. But it's and interesting that those things that we are seeing now from the Victorian times or from the School of Chicago, uh, then were decried at the time as a cheap version of older buildings that were industrialized versions of, of older techniques and so on, that in many cases were also the byproduct of, in the, in the case of the School of Chicago and so on, or well, warehouses in Manchester and, and so on, mass production and changes in the, in the, basically in the means of production of architecture and the means of production of a city on which new techniques were brought to produce cheaper versions of things that in older times were done by hand. Yes, so it's not always necessarily easy to predict what is going to bring joy down the generations since it sounds like they were critical voices. Somebody just was about to speak. Trouble is, if you just keep speaking, I can't see who it is and I don't know who, Sorry, who I was, it is. It was again, I was just about to say, but also to go back to Lee's point, the mill, the mill owners who built these things were highly commercialized and commercially driven animals. And this is the change, isn't it? There's, you know, whereas they would have put some value in this stuff in doing but something. They were publicity. Huh? They were publicity. Yeah, maybe, but I mean, we you don't even basically manifest your building in your building, your business. And yeah, but we have developers now, don't, but we have developers now who don't even care about their own end product because ultimately it's about sales and once it's gone, it's gone. So this is about- Oh, there's a, there's a question, product. there's two, there's a question in the chat, which I think is highly relevant here, which is from Thomas Bennett, which I am wondering which order to bring you in. I think I'm going to start with Azar Architecture about the joy of our existing situation in which we're all getting very familiar with our own homes and all of the little bits of attractive stained glass or otherwise that we have so as as are i'm sorry i don't know what your name is it is as are actually hi <laughs> uh, thank you very much for a very enjoyable discussion and greetings from berlin um it's just um really uh, a reflection upon in one of the most possibly the most difficult challenge the world has ever faced uh covid19 uh, and more with the meltdown of the markets, the property investment, uh, et cetera. Uh, I feel that um, if you look at the property papers, they're only starting to address what might be the most serious issue that, that we're facing. Marginalization of architects, uh, well, that's just built into what we do. We are professional service providers. Pretty much that's it. Um, and we are not in a significant part of the food chain, although we have the most amazing opportunity and a voice to do so. So I really just wanted to open it up about the question of um, some of the dialogues that I'm having around the world with people who've had a few weeks to reflect upon where we are at and actually starting to open up to the opportunity of how we may conduct ourselves with a completely changed economic Mm. potentially political and social world order we've and only I got about interesting but it's a big right, Tim, yeah uh, i wonder if thomas you me. could follow up from what azar has just said thomas bennett 
And I would like to close this discussion really with this series, with everybody, all of our panel responding to Thomas's question. We've got about 10 minutes left. I think that'll probably take us to half past eight. So Thomas, please go ahead. For yeah. seems to follow up from what Azar said. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, I'll try and be quick. It's just around, I know we've talked a lot about um, the downside of profit motives and how it can, it can sort of push a lot of the joy out of architecture, but bar a revolution, you know, those are unlikely to go away. Uh, so what, what actual sort of practical real-life policies can we put in place to encourage more beauty in architecture? I know the recent building, Better Building Beautiful Commission, and I think the government's latest white paper said, has put an emphasis on uh, not just no worse than, which is often the wording in a lot of uh, design policies at the moment, no worse than what's currently there, but we want better than. But how, how do we get that? What sort of practical policies can, can we have? Okay, so panel, we're going to close off really the discussion tonight by you all taking in turn to say, what would you do and what would you put in place in order to promote joy in architecture or for architects or and any other closing comments that you want to make? Uh, Alpa, should we start with you? Uh, sorry, uh, I think can architects be encouraged to try and work harder to input into briefs so that they're not just getting a brief and saying, fine, I'm going to deliver on efficiency, but, you know, really push back and say, as architects, we have an interest in how people use spaces. That's our knowledge. You know, that's our knowledge base. And can we, you know, use that knowledge to push the boundaries of this brief? So that if I'm getting a crappy brief from the collective saying people have to live in 60 square meters, I say, actually, I think that's dog shit. And, you know, maybe we can do better than that. Yeah. Thank you. Alfredo? I was thinking about where are the uh, pieces of a city that I enjoy most? And is where, I mean, in Florence, in Caracas, here in London, and is where uh i feel less the presence of the architects and is when uh, we go to the background and we just let the place be so uh i guess there's some humbleness uh, so that they know our place and let life be so humbleness for architects and let life take its course provide the background for it perhaps lara and frederick yeah, um, I'd just like to add one thing that's been actually quite amazing throughout this thing is just to see how the sun sets in different ways in, all of, in everyone's different environments. Uh, it's been really quite amazing to witness. <laughs> I think I would just add something that, that is, it is a kind of fringe aspect, but something that I think that we are certainly dealing with in our work a lot and with our students that we think is, is of increasing importance and it is to protect and to seriously consider the growing digital spaces that we inhabit, such as this one. I, I don't know if we're going to continue doing this stuff after we can actually meet each other. Uh, <laughs> I assume it's going to drop massively and we, and we will for a while not miss these kind of things, but there, there is certainly something happening. And we, we also engage a lot in, in other virtual environments where you have more embodiment and we actually meet people and those places are developing so insanely rapidly. It's basically like an entire shopping mall industry that is completely invisible to most people. 
that is developing into a, <clears throat> a space where probably newer generation will spend more and more time that has the potential to be incredibly joyful and, and emancipatory. So I think that to focus a little bit, even if we're not actually architects dealing with virtual environments, to keep an eye on it and to, and to stay, stay on top of, of what we think about it and ideas we might have to improve it, make it safer and, and more civic, ideally. Laura? Do you like yeah, to add anything? I think we took a lot of time and I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be sort of awkward if you disagreed, wouldn't it? Because uh, <laughs> you're only going to see each other for some time yet. Uh, Francis? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, <laughs> I mean, during this um, corona lockdown where we're all um, locked up, um, me and my son have been painting his room with... Um, <laughs> A the, the big side wave and it did make me think and this touches in what quite a lot of things people have said about um, owning space uh, in a very direct way and I think part of the joy of architecture is taking something that exists and then adding your own personality and, and things like that and I'm wondering you know with this coronavirus where people will be in their space and they'll think you know I I'll adapt it in my own way whether that's painting it or I don't know, changing it architecturally. Um, I guess the other, yeah, I mean, the other point I'd say and is I do think there's a real, uh, for something we picked up earlier about knowledge being a, a joy to have. And I think in the same way that children learn about science, I think a way of making people enjoy architecture more is to know more about it. Um, So is that the policy that you would implement? The policy everybody should know more be, about architecture. Exactly. Basically, everyone gets a kind of GCSE in, in architecture appreciation. I think they'd enjoy architecture more if they understood more. Deeper enjoyment. Interesting. Lee, uh, how, how would you uh, organize policy or other rules around <laughs> architecture and architects in order to maximize joy well um a few years ago i um kind of curated and produced a, a project and an exhibition that looked at the planning and development system in scotland you know it doesn't on the surface sound very joyful um at all but what i did is i chucked two visual artists into edinburgh city council's planning department and said, can you have a look at what they're doing and um, kind of come at that from uh, the perspective of a non-architect, a non-planner, a non-developer, et cetera. And in the discussions that came out of that, it became clear that the kind of, the final word on development was whether it was going to perpetuate or, or um, create conditions of economic growth. So ultimately, at the point at which the last word, the last decision had to be made, it was about, will this, increase economic growth now my so my policy suggestion is that at that point at that decision what we ask is will this improve people's well-being will this make people healthier you know and i think that if we kind of switch from a will it increase economic growth to will it increase well-being then actually the economic growth thing will take care of itself anyway you know because you know in that discussion before about the kind of um, you know, the Victorian mill owners, the industrialists, the capitalists at the point that they start making houses for their workers and imbuing that with delight and craft and et cetera. 
is because there, there became a point when those people realized that the happier their workers were and the more healthier their workers were, the more productive they would be. You know, actually, the more that they would create, the more that they would turn up, the more, you know, and I think that, you know, we, we move through the 20th century uh, understanding that more and more and more each decade until we got to kind of maybe the 80s where we've kind of slept, you know, managed to sleepwalk back into a situation where we think that, you know, that final point of decision making has to be, is this going to improve economic growth? Is this going to make money, etc.? And I think we need to go back to a policy situation where we say, will this make people better? And that, that would be my suggestion. Great. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I'd really like to give my heartfelt thanks to the speakers, to Lee Ivett and to Lara Lesmes and Frederick Helberg and Alpa Dapani, Francis Terry and Alfredo Caraballo. And thank you so much to Fourth Space for bringing this together. I think these talks are just so interesting. It's an opportunity to have a, a quite a casual and fun dig into what are actually really significant and important topics. So although the official part of this evening is now drawn to a close, you are welcome to stay here in the Zoom meeting. And I think this is right. Is this right, Rob and co, that it will continue and you may sit here and have a chat and a drink? Well, I was just yeah. saying, just to come in here as um, cameraman for the evening, I just want to say thank you to everyone um, for speaking. Thanks to everyone for attending and talking in the chat box. This might sound a bit cheesy, but it's quite good fun to do. But I can unmute you all right now. And I thought it'd be a nice opportunity to give everyone a nice round of applause, all 105 of you. So, good idea. Let uh, it <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.